this is Kat and this is Feminine Chaos. I'm here today with Christy Smythe, previous guest on the pod, also a previous topic of conversation. Uh, Christy, you probably are the best expert on why we have heard your name before. Uh, why, are, why are you familiar? Please explain. <laughs> well, that is a great way of putting it. Thank you so much, Kat. Um, yeah, uh, happy to, uh, to be here talking about this. But um, I am the journalist who left her job and her ex-husband for uh, Martin Shkreli, uh, the pharma bro. And that was publicized in an Elle magazine profile in um, December 2020, which uh, nearly broke the internet. Uh, so that is probably why you've heard of my name. I really feel like when you say, I'm the journalist who left my husband for Martin Shkreli, like we need to have some kind of sound effect. It's such a like a a moment. <laughs> it was such a moment <laughs> online. Yeah, when you reduce it down to the to the, you know, the basic broad strokes. Of course there's more to it than that, but yeah, like it it sounds like a train wreck, right? But <laughs> but you know. I mean, you're obviously, you know, you're a very accomplished journalist and business reporter. Um, you had a whole career as a reporter at Bloomberg before this happened. You've had an amazing like series of moves, uh, including you're now editor in chief at Business of Business. I am. Yes. Yeah. So like after that. And yet this is probably going to be the thing that you're most famous for falling in love with Martin Shkreli. <laughs> It, there are worse things, honestly. I mean, it's it sounds crazy, but it really... Martin and I aren't dating now. I haven't even seen him in two years because of um, COVID and the prison system and visiting restrictions. We also, we had a falling out also over the article, which was conveyed in the article. He was very, very averse to me going public and like broke up with me over that. Um, but we've continued to talk and we remain friends. Um, and, you know, we still have, uh, I, I, I honestly value his, uh, his opinion sometimes. And I, I like, I still enjoy talking to him. And I'm very hopeful that he is going to um, make an actual positive impact on the world when he gets out of prison. When does he get out? He gets out later this year. Uh, I'm not, I'm being kind of coy about the exact dates because I know that there is a, a likelihood that as soon as that date is in print, people will freak out. Uh, so, <laughs> so, um, so basically just, I'll just say, you know, he gets out later this year. Um, uh, it is very common for, um, for nonviolent offenders to get a period of time in um, a halfway house and home confinement. And that applies for him as well. So the date that you see listed on the BOP, the Bureau of Prisons website, that is that is inclusive of the time he would spend um, at home. So he, he would actually be home earlier than that. I'm just not going to specify exactly when. That's fair. Um, what I think is interesting is that once that date is published and people become aware of it, people will also, I'm sure, start becoming aware of this new project that you're launching, which is the thing that we're getting together to talk about today. Yes, you've decided yeah. you've decided to tell your story. I did. Yeah, I this entire odyssey, um, this this crazy adventure I've been on started out with me wanting just to write a normal book. You know, I was a I was a reporter at, at a Bloomberg, you know, a big media company. I was a legal reporter. I was fighting for scoops. You know, I was doing all the things that reporters do. And I actually managed to um, break the story of Martin's arrest uh, before the rest of the world knew about it, I, I had it up uh, on our website and, <laughs> uh, and that, you know, kind of gave me some, some instant, you know, minor stardom. 
Um, and then weirdly enough, you know, we, I, he started talking to me and, and we were, um, you know, it, in a back and forth for quite some time as I was trying to write like a feature story about him. Um, and I thought, you know, well, we get along so well and he's this, you know, this infamous character, I should try to write a book. And I tried to pitch a book that was, you know, mildly sympathetic, but not intending to, you know, skirt around any of the obvious issues. And the reaction from the, the publishing establishment just like shocked me because it wasn't just that they were rejecting the proposal. It was the way they rejected the proposal. There were there was one person who one editor who told me that uh, that my earnestness was off putting. And I thought that was a very strange response. Another one who said, oh, you're a great writer, but you know, can she, can she do something else? Like as if this topic wasn't somehow, somehow this topic itself was inappropriate. And I thought that's also very strange. So there was this like, re there was this huge reluctance, this like brick wall I felt like I was up against, which made no sense to me. And it was, you know, frustration over that and, and getting closer to Martin eventually, you know, convinced me I should just leave my job and pursue a relationship with him you know, like basically screw all those people who would tell me this is a bad idea, you know, because, you know, what, <laughs> what do I care uh, what they think? Um, and, uh, and now, but this, now that I'm publishing this book as a Substack, it is, it is reframed as my memoir. Basically, this is the story of what I've been through over the past several years, what I've learned about myself and what I've learned about Martin. So what I think is interesting, and I've, you know, I've read, obviously, the, the first couple pieces that you've published on your Substack. Uh, the I, it's not by chapter; it's more like by section. Yeah, it's I. It's like in my head, I have it broken into chapters, but each chapter is broken into subsections that are episodic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I've read the first couple sections that you've posted, and then uh, a couple more that you very graciously sent to me before our conversation. So I kind of see like get the lay of the land. And what I think is really interesting about what you're doing is that it is partly a memoir of this relationship. There's also a lot of really interesting and intriguing stuff about the world of like legal and business reporting that that is is interesting because of the way that you narrate it. And what really kind of strikes me about that is, you know, as you were talking about how you tried to originally pitch this book that was about Martin, that was sort of like a, a feature on him, um, that was more sympathetic than editors were willing to entertain. You were complicating the narrative then in a way that people were resistant to. But you're also now with this project, you're you're doing the same thing. You're once again complicating the narrative because somebody who's been through what you've been through uh, is sort of expected to come through with a particular kind of book. People want like an eat, pray, love. They want like, uh, you know, I was victimized and I suffered, but now I've come through and I'm strong and I'm either independent and single and, and I've, I've left this bad person in the dust or like I fell in love with my yoga instructor and now I'm blissfully happy and like super <laughs> pregnant or whatever. But, you know, what, what you've experienced in you know, the story you're telling is so much more complicated and I think so much more interesting than that um, because you still have a lot of affection for Martin that, you know, comes through really strongly, not just, you know, in hearing you talk about it now, but in, uh, in you know, the prose that you've written so far. You don't seem to really have... I don't know, like uh, this, this perspective that we kind of expect or like seek from women who have fallen in love with somebody who we consider unsuitable. Yeah, uh, that is, um, I think, one of the reasons why it, this had to migrate 
to Substack and, and be a Substack because um, the way that the, uh, yeah, the, the, the narratives we have been taught to accept about women who do dangerous things or engage in dangerous liaisons, you know, it fits a number of archetypes and it, none of them felt true to me. So I just couldn't, I can't write something that doesn't feel true. Like how terrible would it be to like try to foist some narrative on your life that like didn't really exist? Um, so, so yeah, like I had to tell it like it was, um, and it just didn't fit anywhere, um, you know, on a shelf like that. So it, it just gets to be, now it gets to be what it is. <laughs> yeah. So tell me about the decision to publish on Substack. Did you start by trying to publish this traditionally and run into similar roadblocks? What was that like? Well, from the very beginning, when I had been trying to publish, you know, years ago, when I was trying to publish the like sort of original version of the Martin proposal, um, I had still been, you know, toying with the idea, rewriting the proposal, shifting it a little bit here and there, trying, thinking about pitching it, talking to agents, talking to editors. Um, but it just, uh, and there was like, you know, a kind of flurry of renewed interest after the L um, article. Um, but then it was still, it did still didn't feel right. Like the, the interest was more, it, they wanted sort of like a prison romance sob story. And that didn't feel right to me either. Like there was a prison romance involved, definitely. But, um, you know, it wasn't, this wasn't like a lifetime movie thing. So, so like, yeah, I, I eventually, I just didn't know what to do with it. I, I had been working on this for so long. You know, I have this giant, I have so many, I have so many notes all over so many places. You have no idea. Um, and, and documents and, and, you know, chunks of prose. And um, Substack, uh, someone from Substack reached out and suggested I do it as a serialized book on their platform. And the idea just sounded so perfect. It just was, it just clicked. It was like, this is exactly the right, right place to do it. It's the right time. Martin's getting out this year. Uh, so yeah, it all came together. When you were talking to editors who you said wanted a prison romance, was there a sense of like, did they want the outcome of the relationship to be a particular way? Did they want you to be a particular way? The reason I'm asking is that something that we talk about on this podcast a lot is this expectation of women writers um, that they're going to kind of eviscerate themselves and show like their damage and their trauma. And they're going to offer that up like a meal to readers. And that that's sort of where you have to live if you're a woman, if you're a woman writing any kind of a personal memoir. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, if that was prevalent in the responses that you got, or if it was more focused somewhere else. I think that is spot on. Um, living in the trauma was exactly the kind of uh, where I think the interest came from um, was, you know, you were this, you know, traumatized prison bride who's, who's had to deal. I mean, and it, it is traumatizing. Let me tell you, like, I, I feel enormously sympathetic for lots of women and families who have loved ones in prison. It is a, it is a difficult, difficult thing, but it, again, it felt it was like to one note and like a cookie cutter that didn't match my experience. So what was traumatic for you was to be in love with somebody who was incarcerated. It was definitely an emotionally difficult experience. And and I happen to be probably a fairly strong person. Um, I know I know because of the things I've been through. Um, so and uh, and what I've um, I think I'm pretty resilient. Um, and, and really, actually, that's more of the story I wanted to tell was about resilience and less about trauma. I mean, trauma is important to talk about, um, but it, you know, it also is important to know, like, how do people bounce back from these things? 
um, you know, how do they withstand them? Um, when, when I was dating Martin when he was in prison, it was a constant roller coaster of uh, like, well, how is he doing? Is he okay? Like, what's happening to him? What are these people like trying? How are these people trying to hurt him? And by these people, I mean like the prison officials and the prison system. You know, that he was thrown in solitary multiple times. Um, there was one time he was thrown in solitary for something absolutely ridiculous. He was, um, he put a letter to his lawyer in a, a regular mailbox when he should have put it in a special legal receptacle and he didn't do that. And they like accused him of somehow trying to circumvent communication protocols and put him immediately in the shoe or in solitary confinement. And it was like, they can stick you in there like with an investigation ongoing and there's no end date when you're stuck in there with an <laughs> investigation pending. Like you can be there for months and months and months. Uh, so it was really, really terrifying not knowing when he was going to get out, how he was going to get out, how the processes, like were the legal processes that were supposed to happen going to happen? Was it going to be adjudicated? Was the investigation going to be over? His lawyers tried to write. That didn't get anywhere. Um, I, I eventually had to just plunge in and advocate on his behalf. Um, I remember sending letters to uh, all of the officials at the Bureau of Prisons. I sent letters to the warden. Um, I sent <laughs> letters to the um, to the regional office. Um, you know, I would visit him every week, including one day on my birthday, and try to get as much as I could in these very short two-hour visits I was allowed to have with him through a glass. And eventually, after I I, I mean, I pried information out of anyone I could get it from. And eventually after I like tunneled my way through to the head of security at the prison, because they don't tell you the names of who these people are. You have to figure it out on your own. Uh, I, I tunneled through somehow, found his email and he actually replied and he said, yes, we're going to let Martin out. <laughs> and, and I was like, wow, wow, I made that happen. I don't know how I did that, but I made that happen. That kind of emotionally exhausting experience happened a lot. <laughs> And so, yeah, that's so incredible. And I mean, the the thing that I that strikes me is, you know, that you were sort of the only one doing this and you're doing it at the same time as there's kind of in the air and in the ether, this sense of this person isn't the type of person who's worth doing any of this for. Like you're advocating for all of this, you know, so, so vigorously for somebody who you care about, but who the rest of the world sees as like somewhere in between a monster and a worm. <laughs> yeah, it's one or the other, right? Like, how can you be both? <laughs> monster or worm. That's, Chimera, a... worm, worm monster hybrid. <laughs> um, it's like, I'm not, I'm not trying to be like goofy no, on it because no, I, I mean, it sounds like it would have been hard just to, to kind of occupy that role, like respective to somebody who's been villainized. Yeah, it, it is. Um, it's it's hard. I mean, I, I used to take a, a van service to see Martin when he was at um, uh, Fort Dix in New Jersey. Um, and I met a, a lot of other uh, girlfriends and wives. And, you know, it's hard for all of them. It's it's so hard. And they all have to deal with some level of stigma, you know, whether it's at work or in their families. Um, and some of them, you know, a lot of them, you know, they don't make a lot of money and they're paying a lot of money to travel to see their loved ones. Um, and so I don't think that the system really appreciates that kind of burden that they're putting on people. Um, but yeah, it's, it is, when, when there are optics involved and very bad optics, and you know, also I think we have to understand, you know, people have this expectation of like, oh, if you're rich, you're treated special in prison and you know, that you know, people will pull strings for you. 
Well, that's true if you're rich and politically connected. Uh, Martin was wealthy. Uh, politically connected, no. He was a political pariah. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it was kind of the opposite. Like, you know, instead of he actually got the worst end of the deal for just about everything because not only was he extremely well known, he was also extremely well known as having like no public supporters. So like that was, yeah, I mean, that's why I eventually like went public despite against his wishes because I was so worried he would get sick and there would be no one to advocate for him. Advocating for somebody who's, you know, who's been villainized and not without reason, you know, Martin obviously committed committed crimes for which he was incarcerated. He also did things that were wildly unpopular that made him seem like kind of a a caricature of a bad person um, made him really easy to hate, even even fun to hate. How do you feel about that aspect of his past? You know, was that ever complicated for you, um, or did getting to know him after his arrest further complicate things for you? Tell me about that. I mean, my initial reaction to that um, drug price increase story when I first learned of it was basically the same as everyone else's. I mean, I. I actually knew he was under criminal investigation at the time. And I think I posted something to Facebook that was like, oh, yeah, karma's coming for him or something like that. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I, that's that was my reaction. And then I got to know him. And there is context that you're not appreciating when you just see the headline. And the context is, here is this kind of scrappy business guy who has no connections, not a lot of capital to his name. Um, he's trying to build a drug company. And he's trying to, you know, do it in any way he can and, and to, you know, make it financially successful and um, researching drugs takes a lot of money, like millions and millions and millions of dollars. And Mm. he thought he could find a way to raise a lot of money to do this by jacking up the price of this drug in his mind, which, you know, I think maybe overly compartmentalized the situation, you know, he thought, well, this drug is covered by insurance. People will be okay. And people who didn't have insurance were got it for free. The problem is though, we know it's not really that simple. Uh, And I don't know if he understood that. The point is that I realized his heart was in the right place. Um, It just was the the manifestation of it was a bad idea. like how the details of it. Yeah. So we should probably, in case anybody is unfamiliar and I'll, you know, leave the stories about this in the show notes, but um, Martin got the rights to a drug that treats toxoplasmosis, which I know of as something that a lot of my friends who own cats were very concerned about when they became pregnant. Um, Something that lives in your cat's ass and also in soil um, and is dangerous to unborn children as well as other, I think, like immunocompromised people. Is that right? Right. Anybody who um, who has, yeah, like there, something is, is off with their immune system. People who have AIDS, for instance, um, are very susceptible to being very ill if they get toxoplasmosis. Whereas anybody else with a normal immune system, you know, can handle it just fine. It's interesting that I guess there's there's certain parallels to, you know, this idea of doing additional harm to people who are already immunocompromised that makes this feel like a very prescient story um, and very like now in terms of the way that it triggered, you know, not just people's sympathies, but people's outrage. Yeah, I mean, well, and, and AIDS and HIV are huge hot button issues for good reason. So um, there are there are for good reason, very strong advocacy voices um, for those communities. And so, you know, he obviously offended them tremendously. So 
the last time we talked, um, I asked you a little bit about what it was like to try to to date in the aftermath of this. And I think that you told me that you just tell everybody who you who you meet to Google you yes. like, right off the bat, <laughs> which I, I really like. I think that's the, the best possible approach. Um, so are you planning on or maybe you can't talk about this, but if you can, um, are you planning on, you know, seeing Martin once he's out of prison? Is there like an existing relationship? Are you guys just going to be friends? Or are you seeing somebody else now? What's the deal? Uh, we're, Martin and I are, are just friends. Um, I do hope to see him. I, I you know, I, I'm owed a hug. I'm, I definitely think. <laughs> <laughs> and just, um, you know, we, we, he, we talked. I mean, he called me yesterday from prison. So, you know, I know he's doing fine. I have been seeing someone kind of casually. It was um, mentioned at the bottom of the L story about um, about the Substack. Uh, he he, it was with his permission. He thought it was funny, but um, I've been, I've been dating a uh, a filmmaker who makes horror movies, uh, and um, yeah, it's it's been kind of chill. It's been nice. Yeah. Um, so when you decided to go ahead and publish this memoir on Substack. I assume that, you know, you told Martin you were going to do this. Did he have a reaction or? Yeah, I did tell Martin I was going to do it. I explained he he's actually very supportive of it. Um, you know, and we've talked about like, this is all mine. This is not his. But my judgment is my judgment. I'm not like seeking approval from him for anything. You know, of course, I, I want to be fair to him. But I'm also wanted to tell the truth and tell my story. But anyway, so I told him about it and I explained kind of the angle and um, a lot of other details. And he said, that is great. I'm proud of you. And thank you for thinking of my feelings as well. I hope it is a smash hit. He sounds so human. <laughs> I bring it out of him. <laughs> What's the response been like so far? Oh, you know, so far, so far, so good. I've, I know that this is not going to be like everybody's cup of tea, right? Like it's... This is, there's a reason why the popular narratives are popular. And my narrative is like kind of a counter narrative. So it's going to be more, you know, appealing to contrarians and people who like have a, an unusual perspective or they want to like look behind things. Um, but the reaction from people who liked it has been so touching and really just, I, you know, it's kind of almost made me tear up a little bit because like, this is like me, this is the raw stuff I'm like ripping out of my soul and somebody's reacting to it and telling me it meant something to them. And, you know, I, I, that means the world to me. So tell me about the, the time span, like the, the events that are going to be covered by this memoir. How far back are we going to go and, and where will it bring you up to? So this is going to be, so I, I have this crazy looking outline on this, um, on this, uh, I have a, a whiteboard in my office and it's like broken up into chapters and then a whole bunch of like post-it notes are like manically posted all over. It's like one of those ser serial killer bulletin boards with like the red screen all over <laughs> <Yes>. the place. <laughs> there's, kind of, there's kind of that vibe going on. Uh, but yeah, so basically like there's a chronology here because when I first started writing a book, it, it was covering a chronology um, from when I first met Martin to his trial, to learning about him, you know, uncovering his background, talking to his parents and his friends, you know, all of his adventures and misadventures that he got into up until the time when he was convicted and sent to prison. And then some of the, the period after prison where some of the, you know, adventures continued, um, kind of leading up to the, to the L article. So like the, all of that chronology will be covered in the substack, but it's going to be broken up into these thematic parts. So you will get the whole chronology, but it will be spread out like, you know, in my serial killer format on the, on my, um, on the whiteboard, 
So each subsec uh, section will will stand on its own like an essay. But when you read all of them, you'll get the whole story strung out through it. It's a combination of, you know, it's it's a memoir, but there's also this repertorial stuff where you've worked in, I mean, one of the chapters that I that I just got to read was um, about Harambe and GameStop. What yeah. does that have to do with Martin Shkreli? Um, you know, surprisingly something, uh, but what's interesting about it is not his involvement, but rather the fact that you have a kind of a toe in all of these different worlds. By, by, by virtue of my position being this fly on the wall and also being in the story, I can see so much about all the things that sort of touch him. Um, and uh, the whole Harambe, Wall Street bets, GameStop, fiasco it does touch him and in it's in an interesting way before he went to prison he was a moderator for wall street bets wall street bets like the original wall street bets people before it got really big um they are fans of his for the most part like they very very devoted fans in a weird way he like fed off of them and they fed off of him in terms of like their whole shit posting attitude and um you know this this kind of self deprecating, degenerate, all those kinds of that language that they use, like that's all kind of also him. So that was interesting. And then when he went to prison, like they, they sent him tons of fan letters. Uh, I have all of them because he forwarded them to me. And so I had to write about that as well. Uh, the chapter kind of goes into the GameStop fiasco. And, um, you know, right after, right afterward, he, he sent me um, an email was like, you know, I'd be happy to comment on this to Congress. And <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't, but uh, it was, yeah, he was, he was, uh, he was really um, found that uh, strange and interesting and delightful, I think. So the fact that you find a connection between Martin and all of these various stories, you know, things where um, the average person might not have any idea that there's a little thread there. It kind of reminds me of how recently in the midst of all of the stories about Amber Heard and Johnny Depp and like the ACLU writing her Washington Post editorial, um, which I'm, I'm kind of glossing over this. If you're not, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'll put it in the show notes as per usual. Um, but like in the midst of all of this, suddenly Elon Musk pops up <laughs> and it's like, it's like because he at some point was dating Amber Heard and when she had promised this big donation to the ACLU, my understanding is that he ended up giving some money to them for her or, or something like that. I'm probably like, you know, shorthanding it in a way that's that's glossing over some important details. But um, just but he just appeared, you know, he just manifested. He's like this little this little ghost in this story about this random Hollywood disaster of a relationship. It's kind of funny because. As far as his role um, and and the way that he positions himself against a sort of a, a mainstream discourse and people in the press, you know, the Elon Musk and Martin Shkreli are not entirely dissimilar. They're both sort of provocateurs. They're both extremely dedicated shit posters. Um, they inspire, I think, a similar brand of. Um, like contempt, but also envy, um, a sense of sort of like powerlessness and impotence amongst people who would like to really be in control of the conversation. Do you see similar parallels there? Am I just like pulling this out of my ass? You're not pulling it out of your ass. Um, I am going to write a section. Uh, I, it's you know partially written, but <laughs> going to finish a section in the near future um, about that particular topic. Um, 
the comparison of Martin and um, Elon Musk. I mean, Elon Musk, of course, massively bigger. <laughs> like everything is, um, you know, is, is much more uh, is blown up exponentially. But um, yeah, the type of reaction, and you're right, the sort of like contempt and envy mixed together, um, especially among coming from like kind of the traditional media gatekeeper uh, types, it's very similar. And and you can kind of tell like the, the the sort of revulsion and like the cringing and the like oh no not him he can't be in charge of Twitter you know like it's it's the same sort of reaction and you're just like well what is it about him like why this billionaire was in another billionaire is okay you know so yeah it's interesting to compare the reactions to someone like Elon Musk to the reactions to someone like Jeff Bezos it's like you know these are both billionaires they're both um, you know manipulating the media in particular ways you right. know, using their financial influence but one of them is a hero and one is a villain right i think it is partly from the shit posting and the uh the absolute refusal to play along with the rules of uh of of engagement on those platforms that that we all think that we're following it's they're not playing i mean jeff bezos does play the rules you know he he comments the way he's supposed to comment and you know he um, employs journalists <laughs> And um, those are all, I think, considered good things. But, you know, Elon Musk posts stuff that we don't know if it's real or fake or what it is or what the implications are. Um, Martin used to do the same thing. I mean, he would post these incredibly ridiculous narratives and subplots that were just designed to stir up a frenzy rather than like be serious. Like I think one time he was, if you look into this, he uh, he he started uh, sort of threatening to uh, buy rare Magic the Gathering cards. And <laughs> I'm sorry. He, <laughs> he started, and, and this this stirred up like this whole subculture was like on fire because like Martin was threatening to infiltrate you know their world. Yeah, you know there is there is something about that. It, it triggers a particular kind of panic and it's especially shrill and if you're not you know in a community that that feels emotional about it, it it can be especially funny to watch um you know in the same way that when elon was like i'm going to buy twitter you had <laughs> legitimate journalists being like this is like the last night in the weimar republic and it's like it's, it's really it's not quite like that <laughs> No, it's probably going to be fine. <laughs> I think I think we can all assume what's going on in Ukraine is much more dire. <laughs> so one thing that I was wondering about that was sort of glossed over in the initial piece about you and that has not been, I think, particularly addressed since that I think a lot of people are curious about is what it was like to leave your marriage under these circumstances. And you guys have been married how long when this all happened? We, uh, we had been together, we had only been married, um, you know, a few years, but we had been together for my, it was getting close to almost, I think it was like eight or 10 years. It's, it's difficult because, you know, his feelings matter to me as well. Um, and he, he is a, a private person who deserves to be able to move on with his life. Um, but yeah, I mean, there will be a little bit, you know, in this book that touches on, um, some of the situations where felt like it was not really the right match. It's, mm -hmm. it's sad. It, we, we did start out in a good place, you know, like a lot of relationships, you, it starts out going really well and then something kind of goes off the rails and, you know, it's hard to put that back together. Yeah. Um, has anyone ever, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting this. I'm just wondering if anybody has uh, suggested to you that this was like a form of midlife crisis kind of blowing <laughs> things up in this way. <laughs> I, you know, I, I'll take 
that. You know, I think I think it's not fair to let only men have midlife crises, right? Like this is one of my things is like I always felt that, you know, the, I grew up reading a lot of male books with male characters, male lead characters. And it was strange that they sometimes felt like I identified with them more than some female characters. And I think it's because we let men be so much more complicated. Like we met, we let them blow up their lives or, you know, run off with their secretaries or do all sorts of crazy things. And we don't like make that their whole identity. That's just something that happened to them. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think that there's, there's something to be said for like a woman just, just getting to live her life and have adventures and, you know, and it doesn't have to just def- like one thing doesn't have to define everything about her. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's remarkable, you know, you're, you're so well adjusted in, uh, in the way that you approach this stuff. I think that this was something that we talked about the last time that you and I chatted that um, something that seems other people find very frustrating about you is that you're so human um, and you're so kind of okay with everything, uh, even when you're being engaged with by the most obnoxious people in the world on Twitter, um, <laughs> that you just sort of are insistent upon being a person in a way that that is so undeniable. Is this something that you did you have to develop this, uh, or is it, does it come naturally? I I'm sure I've always had this to some extent. I was I was very shy when I was a kid, um, but when I kind of found my ability to use my voice when I started getting into journalism and I started interviewing people and being able to kind of control the conversation. Um, I, I realized I could, you know, I could change the course of the conversation. I could make people think I could, um, you know, dig into something or press a button. One of the things I love doing in a kind of perverse way is I like getting past people's defenses. Like if you're dealing with like a sales call you don't want and they're reading off a script or you're like, you know, dealing with um, some bureaucratic person, some administrative person who's like not being helpful. Like I like tunneling through and kind of like zigging and zagging and and making them like throwing them off the script, basically. Like I've always kind of liked doing that (laughs) when I have a good reason, obviously. Um, But, uh, you know, I didn't really do it in any big ways. You know, I wasn't, it was just like a quiet little thing. You know, sometimes I would just be good on the phone or people would overhear me in the newsroom, they would, you know, be impressed with how I handled a difficult call or something. Uh, but this, this situation really gave me the chance to like, put that all together and and to like, show I can do it on a very big scale. So uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm just a very resilient person. And I don't take things personally. Um, in fact, I think when people are getting personal, it's kind of a sign that you're winning the argument. And it's best. And you don't win arguments on Twitter anyway. Like nobody ever wins. (laughs) Yeah. If you're on Twitter, you've already lost. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No one's going to be like, oh, I mean, rarely. Sometimes I actually attract some people in my following who are like, who actually do, you know, they troll and then they like back off or they say, oh, never mind. You know, I agree with you. Um, But Mm -hmm. like that's rare. Mostly, you're not going to get someone saying, oh, actually, you made me think. Thank you so much for providing your insight. Like, that's not a thing people do on Twitter. Yeah, not so much. Um, So you are publishing the chapters themselves. Like, the whole book is basically going to be available on Substack for free. Is that right? Uh, No. (laughs) No. Some of it it will be free. Um, Some of it will not be free, Um, especially, like, the really juicy stuff. 
emails, documents, <laughs> WhatsApp messages. <laughs> those will those will be for the paid subscribers. So you're publishing correspondence, um, you know, like source materials. So people who sign up for a paid subscription, like what do they what are they getting beyond the free subscription? About half of the entire book will be free. Half of it will be script subscription only. And then the subscription will also cover some additional posts, which will include um, the source materials uh, and some extra videos and some extra photos um, and, you know, things like, oh, you know, an FBI 302, uh, a, a document where um, that took notes. Uh, Martin actually went down to the U.S. Attorney's Office after I first reported on the investigation into him. He took a copy of his story in his hand and didn't have a lawyer with him. And for about three or four hours, I think, he uh, demanded to get to the bottom of the story and spoke to uh, two assistant U.S. attorneys and two FBI agents without a lawyer, again, and basically gave this long rambling defense of everything he could possibly be investigated for. Uh, that's that's detailed in an FBI document, which I have, <laughs> which is wow. one of the things, <laughs> one of the many things that will be included um, and available for uh, for paying subscribers. Yeah. Note to listeners, if you're ever under investigation for any kind of criminal activity, don't do that. If you think <laughs> that you are, if, if they, you know, you don't even know, just just don't do that. In fact, you know, it's generally a good idea, even if you're 100 percent innocent, don't talk to the FBI without a lawyer. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes, this is a rare moment of free but good legal advice on feminine <laughs> chaos. So that's amazing. So that that's included in your. Uh, so if somebody only subscribes for the free posts, are they still going to be able to? What I'm trying to really figure out is like, how do you, you know, when you're publishing a book serially um, via newsletter, you're releasing some content for free and some not. How did you approach this as a writer? Well, I mean, I approached this as, as a writer. Really, it was about. Um, did you you ever did you actually read Sex in the City? by Candace Bushnell? I did not. So if you actually read the way she wrote that, um, that kind of inspired me in terms of like how I could make this work in terms as a, as a newsletter. Um, because there's a narrative woven into that book, but it's also very like, you know, episodes. Like it's, it's focused on like certain like things in the dating world in New York at that time, like the modelizers, for instance. So there's like, mm -hmm. The early, the early show, uh, the early HBO version of Sex and the City, I think, drew pretty directly from those like thematic chapters. But there was like, you know, like there was there were threads woven throughout. But you could also like pick it up any part of it and like read it. Like you know, it, it wouldn't matter that much that you didn't read the beginning, the first part of it. So that that's kind of where I wanted to be. Was I wanted it to be like self-contained? So no matter when you start subscribing, you'll be getting something that you find interesting and relevant to you. At the same time, like, you know, there's so much more if you want it. That's fascinating. I never would have guessed that Sex in the City was like a source of inspiration for something like this. Um, is there anything else that you drew upon? Oh, yeah. Sex, drugs and Cocoa Puffs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, of course. <laughs> like, that is, um, you know, that, that's that's canon in terms of like great essay writing. Yeah. And that's the collection by who? who is it? Chuck Klosterman. He's that's right. For Rolling Stone. He's like, you know, very stereotypically Gen X. So what part of the, if, if there is one, um, you know, what section or, or what part are you most excited to share? Ooh, that's tough. Um, 
Man, I am really excited to get into some of the prison stuff. And I am really, really excited to get into the leading up to Martin's sentencing stuff. Because there, that is, um, that's when I started really getting, becoming part of the story to a point where it was getting awkward. Uh, and mm-hmm. like, I mean, I was like, I'm still working at Bloomberg technically, but um, I was like not covering him officially for Bloomberg, but I was still working there. Um, and I was, I actually was in his sentencing documents because I was having conversations with him over the prison email system. And the prosecutors decided to use those conversations against him to try to argue for more time. So there was, there's like in the, in the memorandums, they draw from our conversations together as if to, to, you know, basically make the point that he wasn't remorseful. Um, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think he was just spouting off to me. Um, But anyway, that's what they did. And they called, you know, I was individual one in the documents. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was a moment when I, you know, the wall was broken then, you know, like I realized I couldn't just be, someone was like, Christy, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. And that's exactly right. Like at that moment, toothpaste out of the tube, not going back in. Wow. Yeah. You couldn't be individual one in this story. You had to be main character. (laughs) (laughs) well I was and it was like you know I can't hide it (laughs) yeah yeah and then you became Twitter's main character for a day which was very exciting um you know you weathered that more gracefully than anyone I've ever seen so congratulations (laughs) and um you know you said earlier in this conversation that when you first heard about what was going on with Martin that you felt like you know karma was a boomerang and he was getting what was coming to him do you still feel that way do you think that he's you know paid an appropriate debt for what he did do wrong what what's your take there uh yeah i mean he 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 is although i think that maybe he was more harshly punished than he should have been um strictly on his actions and the impact of his actions um he did cause this you know like i've i've talked to other people in prison who are not martin who um who feel you know the system was very unfair to them and yes you know they lost so much and it's been so horrible and you know they got covid or something like that and um and I agree with them I sympathize with that but I'm also like well you did this to yourself you know you <laughs> like one one of Martin's friends like was a bath salts dealer I'm like well I know this really sucks but you sold bath salts <laughs> <laughs> Like, I, I think you should be let out, too, because, you know, you're obviously not violent and, you know, you're sorry, but you sold bath salts. <laughs> like, you did the thing that you're not supposed to do. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, he did a lot of things that that made the situation worse for him. That maybe it's it's kind of dumb that they made this. Like, should we really be punishing people more because they're spouting off on social media? I mean, no, but we do. And that is what happened to him. He got more time because he was spouting off on social media. He got, you know, a worse bid um, because of the Hillary hair thing. If you recall, he posted on Facebook while he was on bail. Um, he was encouraging people to steal a hair from Hillary Clinton so he could test to see whether she was a lizard. Um, it's this absolutely <laughs> ridiculous thing. But it's like, you know, you're kind of threatening a public official. And you're, you're on bail. You're not supposed to do that. Um, and so yeah, he got, yeah. Yeah, he got thrown in prison for that. He lost his bail. And, you know, there's a whole series of things that happen when you lose your bail. They treat you like you're a more violent offender. So you don't get mm-hmm. to go to a camp. You have to go to a real prison, you know, and it's like they're harsher on you. He did that to himself. 
Yeah. To be clear, this was, he was trolling. He doesn't actually believe that Hillary Clinton is a lizard. He is, no. I mean, Martin is a, his, is a very intelligent person. And no, he does not actually believe Hillary Clinton is a lizard. I think he has a bitter grudge against Hillary Clinton because, you know, he kind of blames her for the negative attention surrounding the drug price increase. But mm-hmm. it's, what that is what it is. And she was doing what a politician does. Uh, so should he have like, you know, should have all those consequences come down so harsh on him just because he was, you know, trolling online? I don't know. But, you know, they did. And he did do those things. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, something that I read recently about how prosecutors will often when they have um, like young black defendants who are active in like kind of SoundCloud rap communities, they'll use the lyrics from their rap songs that they write to prove that they're like dangerous and violent. Um, and, you know, that's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not exactly the same thing as writing trolley posts on Facebook, but it's not completely unlike that either. It's art. Like, let it be. It- Right. You know, they'll use whatever scrap they can to get whatever they can. Well, I think that one of the interesting things, um, and I expect that it will be an interesting part of your memoir, is how uh, this triggered for you a really passionate interest in criminal justice reform. And also um, what I think is an incredibly healthy level of skepticism that I wish more journalists would exhibit about what the police tell you and what the relationship of that is to the truth. Um, You know, one of the things that like, I mean, this comes up a lot uh, at Reason Magazine, where I'm sometimes a contributor, is, you know, the police will issue a press release uh, saying something about somebody they've arrested or about uh, some kind of bust that they did or whatever. And very, very often journalists will just print that as though it's true and as though, you know, there's no spin on it coming from law enforcement to make things look a certain way. And, um, you know, no journalist worth their salt should be doing that. Yeah. Uh, it, but it's it's hard, right? Like when you are starting from square one, the human mind is, is, is you know, going to latch on to the first version of a narrative it hears. And that's going to sound mm-hmm. the most truthful. That's just unfortunately how it is. Um, and it, it bothers me that, um, you know, in our criminal justice system, you're innocent until proven guilty. And, you know, we, we tell jurors, you know, the, the prosecutor, you know, the, the defense has no burden of proof and the prosecutors have to prove and so on and so on. But that totally discounts the fact that human minds don't work that way. Like we, when we hear an affirmative narrative and when you get a press release as a journalist from you know, the prosecutors or the cops laying down an affirmative narrative, that's the one you'll believe. And it's hard to, to you know, go against that. It's hard to, you know, it's counterintuitive to, um, but you have to, you have to fight that and think about well, where are the weak spots? Where are the holes? What am I not getting? What, you know, whose voices am I not hearing here? They're editing it. They're editing what they're telling you. They're, they're spinning it. And it, it takes some effort to unspin it. Yeah. I mean, if nothing else, it's, it's not, dissimilar to when a you know a celebrity divorce happens just to go back to the right. Johnny Depp Amber Heard thing um it's always a race you know who's going to get the first piece placed by their PR team because if you get out ahead of it you control the narrative and when it comes to crime reporting the police are always going to be the first ones dispensing a story so it's really the responsibility of journalists who report on this stuff to be that much more cautious and that much more skeptical about just running with the first thing they hear absolutely and they should take it more seriously when there are accusations that come up of 
planting evidence or, you know, of, of I don't know, like various ways that sometimes um, witnesses might feel coerced to testify or something or not testify or something like that. Like there are lots of ways that are off camera that um, prosecutors can kind of mold things to their advantage. They can shape what is presented to the court and, you know, what is thrown out as, as being not relevant. Um, and when there are questions of due process not being carried out properly, journalists shouldn't just brush that off. They should think about it. So when you're through with this project, what do you hope that people will take away from it? Well, what I hope they take away from it is that they stop or, or are more thoughtful about how they approach uh, Twitter dog piles, <laughs> for one thing. <laughs> or, you know, whenever someone is like, point is like a villain is is someone painted it as a villain instantly online take a second just take a beat read a little bit more before you jump online and before you throw your comment in there like at least read the whole article you know that would be nice uh or or just like you know just i would just like it if people were a little bit more thoughtful and i don't know it, it probably will make a big difference but even if you know some number of people become more thoughtful i will have accomplished something Amazing. So, you know, t- take away, read the whole article, never talk to the cops without a lawyer <laughs> yes. present. And um, tell us the address of your Substack so people can find it. Sure. It's www.smirk-book.com. Christy Smythe, thank you so much for joining me on Feminine Chaos. Thanks for having me. And this is it. This is the podcast. If you enjoyed my conversation with Christy, I hope you'll consider becoming a premium subscriber to the Feminine Chaos Substack. You can find us at femchaospod.substack.com. For $5 a month, you'll receive early access to all our public episodes, sometimes longer exclusive cuts of conversations like this one, and exclusive episodes just for premium subscribers, as well as access to our entire back catalog of previous podcasts. Again, that's femchaospod.substack.com. Thanks for your support.